Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera. Another COVID-19 edition of Off Camera, to be accurate. And I'm once again broadcasting from the closet in my children's playroom. And I'm surrounded by memories, puzzles and stuffed animals and games and even a toy xylophone. Just in case you were wondering whether I was really in a closet, there's even a game of Boggle right here. And um, this is what life has become. Hiding in the closet, hoping the phone doesn't ring, hoping that my kids are engaged in their Zoom classes and I can make this recording. And if you've been listening for a while, you know that we've been playing some of my favorite episodes from the past while we figure out our next direction with Off Camera. And today I wanted to bring you a very special episode Namely, our 100th episode in which our guest was Ron Howard. You know, thinking back on doing that episode, it was a big deal for us because I never thought I'd hit 100 episodes of this show. And if you'd told me when I started it that we would do 100 of these things, it, it would have blown my mind. And yet here we were after doing episode 99 and trying to figure out that 100th episode guest. And you can't believe the names that were bandied around and people that made the list, but Ron Howard is someone that has been in my media periphery since I was a child, since my first memories of television, of movies. I, I remember seeing him on television in black and white when he was Opie. And of course, Happy Days was one of those seminal TV shows that my family never missed. And then as I became more interested in film it was fascinating to watch Ron Howard turn from this actor into a director and then from a director into like a major media figure who created his own production company and his own brand of entertainment. And I've been lucky enough throughout my life to work with him a few times and he never let me down as the guy who was level-headed and kind and nice and the person you expect that he was on happy days and when I asked him to do the hundredth episode he was so gracious and so excited to do it. it made us feel really like a very legitimate show because Ron was like of course I'll do the hundredth episode I'm honored and I'm flattered and it was so much fun to have him on and he really indulged us we had a photo shoot complete with a cake that he put in my face and some silly t-shirts and he couldn't have been kinder throughout the whole process and I remember when we booked Ron it was right before I took a family vacation and my family and I got invited to Hawaii and all I remember about that vacation was how hard I worked on my preparation for sitting down with Ron Howard and after doing all that research and realizing that I was gonna have to throw away 90% of my material because I just had too much I realized that there's really no shortcuts to making an off-camera episode because my goal is to really find the essence of why I wanted the person to come on in the first place, why I'm attracted to their work, and what makes them tick creatively. And to do that, you really have to sort of take in the depth and breadth of their career. And in Ron's case, he has a career as an actor and has a career as a director and a career as a producer. And I could have done eight more hours with him. I could have frost Nixoned him for, for the next six days and still have had new material to talk about. But I did my best and I was really proud that he was my 100th episode guest. And so I wanted to share that with you this week. So I hope you enjoy the show. Hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making it. And that a little bit of Ron Howard can brighten your day. Because I know our days need brightening right now. 
This is an unprecedented time in our history, and I implore you all to stay safe and be kind to each other and be respectful and try to use good judgment rather than thinking of the short term. Let's all think of the long term and what our collective goal is, which is to go back to our normal lives as a society. And if that means staying at home and doing what we're supposed to do, I'm all for it. And I'll sit in this closet as long as I have to. And I just want to say that I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk to all of you and to share this content with you. So thanks for listening. Now to the show. I feel like we should have some trumpet playing. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Nathan Shields, our multi-talented sound man, cameraman, editor, and trumpet player, helping me out with a little bit of fanfare because this is the 100th episode of Off Camera. What's off camera? Well, as you know, it's the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this very special episode, I sit down with director, actor, and producer, Ron Howard. You know, when we started this thing, I never thought it would go 100 episodes, and we're planning on making a ton more. But Ron Howard reached his 100th episode when he was just 10 years old on The Andy Griffith Show. But his big dream was to direct a feature by the time he was 19. He didn't reach that goal until he was 23, but let's give him a break. He was busy acting in some of the most popular television shows of their time, including the aforementioned Andy Griffith Show and Happy Days. Ron knows he was lucky to have the parents and early opportunities that he did. He also never took them for granted or missed an opportunity to learn from them. He negotiated his way into his first directing job and has been proving himself as one of our most talented and deeply human storytellers ever since. As widely as his subjects range, space, mermaids, race cars, parenthood, schizophrenia, and now Einstein, they have one common element, Ron's ability to let us know exactly how it feels to inhabit those worlds. Despite appearances, success hasn't always come easy, largely because Ron sets such a high bar for himself. In this conversation, he talks about his transition from acting to directing, working with some of our best-known actors, and why the editing room used to want to make him slit his wrists. He also shares how a 17-hour, vomit-soaked plane ride led to the most important and personal film of his career. We'd probably need 100 more episodes to truly cover his story, but I wasn't going to miss the chance to sit down with an artist and human who personifies so many of the qualities we celebrate on this show. So pull up a chair and listen in. Okay, Nate, you can do the trumpet. Hi, Ron. Hi, how are you? Thanks for doing this. Oh, it's good to see you, Sam. You know, obviously, kids in this day and age with the golden age of television and opportunity and every show ever made at their fingertips, I don't think can quite understand how limited our television choices were <laughs> right. as children. Hey, oh, and man. me as a kid growing up, there was really... The Brady Bunch, The Partridge Family, Happy Days, <laughs> Andy Griffith, maybe The Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> and that's what television was like back then. We, I, so I feel like I grew up knowing you. Well, And then I'm a fan of the films you've done. And, thank you. And, uh, and this is a big occasion for me to have you on the show because it's our 100th episode. 100th? Yes. I'm, that's an honor. I'm, it's I'm an honor. 100th. Hey, 100 is a hard number to get to in any, in any uh, era. It's a congratulations. Thank I, you very much. I, you know, we've, I've been involved in a few TV shows that made it to uh, 
a hundred. A few. Uh, I guess the first time I was involved in a hundredth episode, if I'm doing the math here, about we used to, we started off doing 39 Andy Griffith shows, then we did 32, which was a, a bit of a break. So probably I guess around age 10. Age 10. Around 10. Age 10. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't want to uh, minimize uh, you know th this uh, this moment. And, I, I uh, have been called a late bloomer, <laughs> but I think it's fair to say that you are an early bloomer. <laughs> well. <laughs> I had some great opportunities, and I I, I really um, did, it, it, you know, and, and I and I and 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 the greatest opportunity of all um, is, is are with the parents that I was uh, born to, you yeah. know, and uh, my father, Rance Howard, who is still still with us, still working. Yeah. He's up in Marin County right now, d uh, shooting a, a TV show. Was a you know a natural born kind of a genius of a of a father, and also a fantastic. Acting teacher for for and he was already an actor, but he knew how to impart. Well, you know, I looked at his IMDb page, and he has nine projects in development. I mean, he's eighty-eight years old, correct? He's, yes, he's eighty-eight. And he seems like he has more things going on than almost anybody. He's a he's a he's a busy man. He's he's very competitive, and every once in a while, I remember growing up, you know, uh, he I'd say, "How was that audition, Dad?" And he said, "Oh, X." You know, he'd mention somebody and say, oh, that son of a bitch got the part. He always gets the part. And then I'd mention another one, and there'd be somebody else. And he'd say, oh, yeah, they gave it to Simon. That son of a bitch always beats me out. <laughs> and um, he's just been working so much of late. And I said, well, Dad, I, you're working a lot. I guess, I guess you've outlived some of those other sons of bitches, huh? <laughs> and he said, yeah, but not enough of them yet. <laughs> so the fire is still there in the belly. Do you think there's something to the idea that you guys are hard workers in your genes because you look at your IMDb page and you have film credits in seven decades. <laughs> well, I got an early start, you know. You, you uh, certainly did, and uh, and I've enjoyed it. And you know, I think I think one of the things that that I was uh, a huge benefit was that I I always enjoyed it. So I didn't go through a period of you never wanted uh, to leave it and try something else. I'm uncomfortable, I don't want to do this. I, I kind of I knew what my default careers would be if I couldn't transition out of being a child actor and, 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 and actually you know, fulfill the dream that I had, which was to be a director. What was your default career? Well, it was either to be um, like a, you know, a history teacher um, and, and probably try to be a basketball coach or something, you know, like a high school history teacher and basketball coach, or maybe to be a, a journalist. And really? At that time, I would have focused on sports journalism, probably. But I loved, I loved journalism all through school and was co-editor of the, of the uh, paper and things like that. So I've always been fascinated by that. And again, it gets back to parenting, but um, that work ethic is something that I could witness. Even though I was very quickly, early in my life, actually getting you know higher profile work than he was, right. he handled that so incredibly well. And I, so I think I also gained another understanding or a measure of gratitude because I could actually see how fortunate I was to be getting these kinds of roles. And it's a thing that so many other people are striving to, to, to gain. And I just have never taking that for granted, I don't to this, to this day. I get excited when I show up on the set. Even if I know it's gonna be a tough day of shooting and a part of me is like dreading some of, some of the things I'm gonna have to face, whether they're logistical or personality clashes or just struggles I might have creatively with the scene, I still, as the car is pulling up, I get a kind of surge 
of, all right, let's see what we can do. Let's see, we have these resources, we have these people, we have this story, we have this opportunity. What, what, what can we do? You're right, it's all parenting because, I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of confidence to make decisions at such an early age that set your life on course. I mean, you found your spouse and got married so young, had kids so young, <laughs> yeah, yeah. quit acting so young. Well, I was getting a lot of reinforcement as an actor, but, and, but, but I, um, I could also see my own limitations. And so I, I, I have a pretty healthy dose of self-criticism that's always running along in the back of my mind. And I felt like even though Happy Days was continuing to go along and be very successful and very lucrative, uh, that I, I had to check myself. And I was beginning to direct during the off-seasons and loving it. But I also saw that the studio system, feature films, were not going to embrace me while I was on a television series. They just wouldn't. And I became concerned that if I held off and went the full run of Happy Days, whatever that might be, that I might miss this moment. Uh, right. And, you know, I, get, I, I think I guessed, I guessed right, even though it was, a t it was a tough decision and hard to leave everybody on that show and hard to leave the money. It was, it was you know, I mean, it was great. Uh, on, on, a, on a lot of levels, but um, you know, I, I I had been kind of deferring the dream of becoming a full-time director the entire time I was with the show. Now, now, now put that in context with age. Well, <laughs> deferring the dream. <laughs> I know. Well, well, my my first dream was to direct a feature while I was still in my teens. So this is the that was the goal, kind of on a on a, a very superficial one. Who cares? But it, it mattered a little bit to me. But I didn't do that. I was at USC and you know, I thought I might make an independent movie somehow, scrape scrape it together to you know, the independent market wasn't what it was today. Right. It was an even kookier idea, but when um, well, to be, to be honest, w when I was 17, a senior in high school, my, I, my draft number for Viet was very was in the 41, and that oh was a low gosh. number. And there were no more college deferrals. There were no more educational deferrals. There were there were some work deferrals, and I I had this opportunity to do a pilot for a TV show, even though I was I had just been accepted to USC um, film school, and that was what I wanted to do. This was pre Happy Days. It was it was the Happy Days pilot that turned out to be on a, a spinoff of Love American Style and didn't sell. But I thought, hmm, I don't, I'll bet that ABC would keep me out of the jungle <laughs> if I was the lead of their sitcom. I didn't think it through any more than that, but it was sort of like the, it was the, it was that, that tipped the scales to a yes. So then the show didn't sell. Right. And then it came back two years later, and, and oddly, even though I'd gotten into USC, I, I realized that I hadn't quite given up the itch for acting. American Graffiti had been a big success, but I did a lot of acting jobs, movies, some good television movies and things like that, but not great stuff. And when, when Happy Days came along, I thought, you know, this is a, this is a pretty good gig, and I should take it. Uh, and I thought, t you know, TV shows, how many of them ever run? I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll bank a year or two It'll go back canceled. to film school. Yeah, right. And, um, and it just kept going and going and going. So you deferred your dream for a draft deferment. <laughs> which, which I didn't need because Nixon ultimately uh, did away with the draft. Right. But I didn't agree with that war and I didn't want to go in and serve. Yeah. Well, I would imagine in that age, you say you want to direct films and 
the response isn't what it would be today. No, I got a lot of very patronizing pats on the head. You did. Yeah, and the director saying, "Yeah, when you, I, you keep it up, when you get into your 30s, you know, I, I you know, keep." Keep making short films and things. You know, the system was so different yeah. at that time. So the one place a new young filmmaker could have a chance to not have to scrape the money together, you know, uh, uh, on their own, was working for Roger Corman. The B-movie king. Yeah. Again, there was no MTV at this point. There was no way to go do videos. You know, I mean, he gave Martin Scorsese his, the first job. He gave uh, Francis Coppola, Dementia 13, uh, his first movie opportunity. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich. And it went on and on. Jonathan Demme. You know, lots and lots of, of award winners. Uh, right after me was, was James Cameron. Uh, you know, then the list, the list go, went, goes on and on. And he described his approach in a very interesting way. He said, you know, it's, it's up to the director to bring the point of view and even the politics. I don't care, but I, I need, I need a, a genre that is fulfilled to the extent that an audience sees a poster, watches a trailer, goes to that movie and isn't disappointed on, a, on an escapism level. So when you went and did that, I mean, you, you acted in the film. You did Grand Theft Auto, and you acted in it and directed it. Well, before that, um, I, he, Roger, Happy Days had become a number one show in our third season. And I wasn't getting great movie offers as an actor. But this offer came in for a movie called Eat My Dust. And I read it, and it was kind of a goofy car chase comedy. And, you know, and I... I I wasn't that impressed with it. But I had written a script with my father, which was like an indie-style movie, something I hoped to make kind of on my own in 16 or something. And when this came to me, I thought, oh, oh, this is, this is an opportunity maybe. And I went to the meeting with Roger, and I even asked my agent of, you know, who of, of many years, the guy who had been my agent as a kid, not to go to the meeting because I knew he wouldn't support what I was going to pitch. But I went into Roger, and I said, um, to be honest, I don't really love Eat My Dust. But I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I should have been wearing the T-shirt. What I really want to do is direct. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, well, I know your reputation, and I'd like to follow on that path. I'd like to go to the University of Roger Corman, you know. And, and he said, yes, we like to think we, we churn out directors for Hollywood the way USC churns out running backs for the NFL. That was his statement. And um, he said, well, let me read your script. And he read it, and he said, well, this is sort of an art film, you know, and that's not really what I do. It's, it's well-written. Um, he looked at a couple of short films that I'd made. They were very rough around the edges, but he said, I can really see that you can stage scenes and cut them together and, and all of that. So he said, here's what I'll do. I, I'm not going to promise you everything you want, but given what I've seen here, if you'll star and eat my dust, um, I will give you an opportunity to develop a story. And it can be you and your father or however you want to do it. And um, if that works, we'll go to screenplay. And if that works and I want to make it, you'll get to direct it, providing you star in it. And he said, if all that fails, I will guarantee you that you can direct the second unit on one of my other car crash movies. So hardly, it wasn't like I'd been, you know, like uh, uh, touched by the, the pellicula of the god of cinema uh, with, the, with the golden opportunity. But... It was concrete. Yeah. It was real, and I believed in Roger, and I thought this is as you know this this is somebody who's listening to to my ambition, and so I, I did it. It was a hit. 
we went in, I went in and pitched a lot of ideas for kind of cool indie style movies I thought I'd want to make, a cool sci-fi thing, and right. a noir kind of movie, and I had a lot of ideas. And he said, well, those are all great, but he said, when we were testing titles for Eat My Dust, there was another title that came in a very close second, Grand Theft Auto. He was very, Roger's a very erudite man. Grand Theft Auto. If you can fashion a car crash comedy, starring yourself, of course, that we can correctly entitle Grand Theft Auto, that's a picture I might make. <laughs> and, really? Based I on mean, the title? In about 36 hours, my dad and I had an outline. In about another three weeks, we had a script. It was the fastest green light I think I've ever gotten in my, in my life. No kidding. Uh, and, we, and I got to make Grand Theft Auto, and it led to a lot of great things. Not only a fantastic experience, a learn, hell of a learning experience, uh, I mean, I was skinny going in. I lost 15 pounds making that movie. Did you really? I mean, I was really uh, skin and bones when it was over. The editor, who was Joe Dante, the great director, was my editor. He was another Roger Corman graduate. And uh, he, he called me up about halfway through. He said, Ron, you gotta eat something. I know you're directing and you're starring, but you gotta eat something. <laughs> <laughs> it's showing, it's showing in the dailies. Uh, and, uh, but uh, I, it was a tremendous experience. And more imp most important of all, uh, um, and I, I was already married. I was 23 at this time, so I didn't meet. I didn't make a movie at 19, but I did get to make it at 23. Right. And uh, God, my wife Cheryl was uh, a PA and everything. And then she, the, the crew was rebelling, and she wound up cooking the meals for everybody, and they loved her for it. And uh, uh, we got through the whole thing. And we, we, our wrap party was this impromptu gathering out at right next to the Saugus Speedway where we'd finished shooting this car demolition derby sequence on our last day. The second unit was there, the first unit was there, we were all there, filthy. And it was just impromptu, doing shots, listening to whatever the bar band was, and dancing. And I remember saying to my, to Cheryl, I said, this is, I like this even more than I dreamed I would, you know? And so I was completely hooked. Well, you say that the crew rebelled and you're young. I mean, I remember myself in my 20s and trying to go out there and make something of myself. I had days when I had a ton of confidence, and I had days when, uh, you know, if you, if you blew on me, I'd, I'd, oh, I I'd thought, shrivel up out of fear. I thought I was going to get shit-canned on the very first day. Did you really? Well, because I, I went in, and I was nervous as hell, and I had to be in the scene, you know. And uh, Roger had said, look, uh, I have some requirements. You have to you have to shot list everything, and I want you to diagram all the action scenes. So I had done all of that homework, and uh, and I was prepared, and I'd gone over and over it. Our cinematographer Gary Graver was an experienced guy, and uh, and yet it, Roger had said, it, "I'm going to come the first day, probably just half the day," and he said. Uh, if it's going well, you won't see very much of me. But if it's not going well, and you're not making your days, you're gonna see one hell of a lot of me. So I understood the rules, and I talked to Jonathan Demi and others who were, who, you know, were already graduates, but who'd counseled me a little bit, and I, and, uh, I knew that the, the, you know, the budget was the, was the, the thing. And um, I was just dying. I mean, by lunch, I think I was supposed to do 32 setups that day, and I think I'd done five or six or something, you know? And, and it was an interior scene with some lighting and some staging, and I was really sick. And um, Gary Graver came into my trailer and said, well, I think here's some ideas. We, you know, we can simplify some things. And, and we, we wound up, you know, making our day. We went like one hour over, and we made our day. It was brilliant. He really carried me. 
and uh, Roger stayed all day, which was not what he was supposed to do. But he was very happy when it was over, and he came a little part of the second day, and then he left, and he said, I think you're doing great, Ron. And, uh, and the support was there. And by day three, I felt like I really had my rhythm, and I felt like I'd been, been, been directing for, for years. Because I began to see that, A, you could really trust the crew, because I did have a plan, but there, you didn't have to be rigid about it. You know, there were, there were ways to be more expedient. Right. Uh, and if you communicated more efficiently, um, you know, you got, you got what was in your head, you know, onto the, onto the screen in a more consistent way. I just learned a hell of a lot very quickly. But having been an actor, I innately just, just understood the rhythm of a shooting day and that kind of creative problem solving. And it's why I always believe that the, the, the shortest cut to being like a, an effective, efficient director is having acted. It doesn't mean that you can't come out of film school having made a great short or be a fantastic DP and make a movie that no one ever will ever forget. But in terms of just you know having that, that skill set, that sensitivity to with a live action production, getting that work done and, and realizing the, you know, the potential, the possibility of, the, of scenes, I think actors have a leg up. I wonder how much your style was developed on that first film. The biggest thing that I learned in that first film and in others was to really learn to not just trust collaboration, but to love it. And it took me a little while as a young director to be willing to say, to a cinematographer or an actor or a writer, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I imagine. I mean, if you're the youngest guy on set, you already, I'm sure in your mind, you're already going, these guys are planning on me failing. Yeah. Or, they're, or they're not giving me good odds. Right. Everybody wants the director to know. They actually want the director to succeed, but they're ready to look at it and sort of say, hmm, you know, I don't think, uh, I don't think he or she is, they don't, they don't have it. They don't understand right. the scene today or whatever. And, and, and then you can start to lose that support system. But, I mean, there's nothing more exciting than an actor coming up with a legitimate problem. And suddenly you're in the middle of it. Um, and, and it's so exciting to see the solution, uh, you know, emerge. I mean, I get, I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm so thrilled. That's why I love, you know, I love actors who, uh, you know, want to contribute. Right. You know, like Felicity Jones was in Inferno. And, yeah. And, 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 of course, Rogue One after that and before that Theory of Everything where she was nominated for. Very um, bright, talented woman. And, uh, but, you know, in, uh, 30 years old. And uh, she's working with Tom Hanks and I. And it, you could see that she was a little reluctant to engage in this kind of conversation. It's because of the legendary status, you and Tom yeah. are there. And, and the fact that Tom and I would inevitably slip into war stories, which I, and then we'd have to apologize for her and say, this must be boring the hell out of you, Felicity. But when we were back doing Splash underwater, uh, <laughs> but, which we kind of couldn't help ourselves. But she said, no, I'm learning as much from that as anything and keep going. But I loved seeing her get her footing. And I loved what she did with that character. And a lot of it was her taking ownership and, and my beginning to understand what she had to contribute and knowing how to support her in yeah. that. And that's thrilling for me. And, uh, and uh, so I'm always looking for that, whether it's, again, the, 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 the cinematographers, editors, composers, but writers, I love the, that collaboration. 
Um, but uh, you know, it's very exciting for me always with the cast. Well, I would say the first film that that really got me was Parenthood. Oh, and, thank you. You know, I saw it when it came out in theaters, and then for this, I watched it again, and it's funny that it connected with me again, oh. but in a whole different way. I mean, I have kids, and, and they're the age of some of those kids in there, and, and I didn't have kids the first time I watched it, but it connected with me both times. And I, I wanted to talk about that as an example of a film, because I think that film probably changed your scope as a director of what could be done with cinema. I mean, was that film... Definitely. Do you feel close to that film? I feel very close to that film. It's probably probably my most personal film because it was it was made at a time where I was I you know I could have been the Steve Martin character and and almost all of us involved Brian Grazer, myself, uh, Lowell Gans, Bob Lou Mandel we were all kind of living that you know and so for for all of us it was it was it was very um, it, it was very personal and I and it was a very important stepping stone but it was a great experience the, the sort of the serial comic combination um, the, the 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 different ways in which it reached different audience members right it's the first time that I was really um, you know aware of of uh, of, of that possibility and uh, and I you know I love um, you know I love stories that um, create Empathy. Now, notice I didn't necessarily say sympathy, although you, you certainly want the audience to feel sympathy for some characters. I'd like them to feel empathy for for almost all of them, and and that is that um, a goal for me is to sort of put the audience in the circumstance as best I can, whatever the genre, and try to create some suspense around that, whether it's comedy, fantasy, or thriller, you know, or adventure story. Yeah. And that's that process of sharing with the audience uh, ideas that feel very, very relatable. And it's a it's a different kind of, you know, it's 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 not it's not the purest kind of escapism. It's more no. about connecting. But it can still be fun, and it can still be exciting and thrilling. But there is that that sort of emotional tether. Did that film feel like a risk to you? At the time, well, they all feel like risks. In fact, when the ones the ones that I felt sure about commercially ha have almost always been somewhat disappointing. Really, and the the ones that I was un unsure of tended to do better. Going, like Apollo thirteen, I I had no idea that was going to be a commercial movie. I didn't think Cocoon would be commercial. So no, I I wasn't convinced that Parenthood was going to be commercial. We made it modestly. You know, I always have a way of I like to reduce, be a little reductive. It's almost it's almost like a, a way of taking a little bit of the pressure off. Like with Cocoon, I used to call it uh, Close Encounters on Golden Pond, <laughs> just as a way of sort of saying, "Come on, you're not reinventing the wheel here," you know. But uh, here, and and Parenthood, I used I used my goal was to sort of say the greatest sitcom ever told. You were managing uh, your expectations. Yes, of, yes, of, right. I wonder if that's a movie where you discovered that. To discover an essential truth about something, you can go as specific as you want and personal as you want, and it will still resonate. But if you don't do the work to discover that essential truth, you can't make a connection. I mean, was there a discovery there for you? On Definitely, that? it was the f it was the first movie, even though it was fiction, that was built on bedrock of authenticity. I did Parenthood, which was sort of inspired by me and the inner creative circle, us, some of the things that we'd felt, and emotions that were very real to me and that I had experience with. 
And then I did a movie called uh, The Paper, which was about journalism, right. a subject I loved. So I was beginning to move into this area of building on authenticity first and foremost, and then letting the fiction grow out of that, which you're right, began with parenthood. Then came Apollo 13, and I'd always been afraid to deal with a true story because I thought it was going to be artistically, creatively limiting. And, but the story was so compelling, um, and it was such a great cinematic opportunity. Yeah. And I had this probably the most exciting creative experience ever. Parenthood was very personal. I've loved making some movies down the, down, you know, lots of them. I've loved it. But I think uh, there, were, there, were, there was something about Apollo 13, the story we were telling, which was little known, using, t you know, movie magic to try to, in a very authentic way, let people understand what those space pioneers really did. Right. You know? And tell this story that was kind of bittersweet because it wasn't about a triumph. It was about, it was about um, you know, survival and a rescue. What did that open up for you? Because it's just like this new project that you have, uh, the Einstein yeah, film Ge Genius, Genius on National Geographic Channel. It's taking something that people think they know and it's finding out there's all these tributaries of stories that haven't been well, mined. I'll tell you, it, Apollo 13 opened up that possibility because I not only enjoyed it, um, but I, I was also really blown away by, by the way audiences responded to real events and the details in real events. They had much more patience for the, 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 the specifics and the details than they would a movie that's um, you know a thriller or a, or a, you know a genre movie. But here was the big epiphany: audiences were so fascinated by the details of it, even if they didn't quite understand those acronyms and all of it. They you know you could tell it became part of the entertainment value of the story. But when we were doing test screenings for the movie, um, it it uh, you know there's no publicity. You, you just drop the movie in an audience, and, sure. and they know it's a test audience. They don't even know what they're going to see. And so this audience loved the movie, even though our visual effects weren't finished. It was just so thrilling. The, the, the test scores were, you know, spectacular. In fact, there was only one out of 400 that gave it a pour. I mean, that's great when you... But, of course, as a director, even though at that point I had Final Cut already and I, I, I didn't have to worry about that guy's card, I, I needed to find the poor. And it was a guy. It was a young guy, age 21. And he just did not like it at all. Just poor, wouldn't recommend it. Just big, terse, bold pencil strokes. Just dismissive as hell. Finally, I, I flipped over the card, and I couldn't figure out what was bothering this guy. And I said, and said, please comment on the ending. He said, terrible. More Hollywood bullshit. They would never survive. So, of course, he didn't know it was based on a true story, and he thought it was hopeful. Exactly. You know, I mean, uh, so I thought that's another reason you make true stories, because you take it, uh, really extraordinary moments where, um, um, you know, uh, outcomes uh, defy expectation, behaviors uh, defy expectation and logic sometimes, yeah. but they happened, and that's what you get to work with. So you, suddenly your storytelling can be so much more extreme and within that is the freedom because now you want to apply cinema to that and express to an audience you know it's not a documentary you still have to make these creative you know choices to try to express to an audience again what it might what it might 
have felt like to be there. And that's a really thrilling job for me. And I've, since then I've done, you know, six movies based on real events. And now, um, you know, this, this uh, you know, piece about Einstein for National Geographic, which was, uh, a, you know, a real joy. And I don't think I would have tackled this subject either as a director or an executive producer had I not had the experience of A Beautiful Mind and some of the other, um, you know, stories, movies based on real events. Because, I mean, you know, we're dealing with Einstein here. The bar is high. Well, it's funny. You know, you've said in many conversations that you call yourself a non-intellectual. And I think that taking a story that's that complex and figuring out how to cinematically tell it in a way that audiences not only will feel engaged and feel like they can keep up, but also that they can find the humanity in someone that before they've held on a pedestal, I think that's an intellectual pursuit. Well, and I, but I wonder if you call yourself that, I wonder if that's sort of that imposter syndrome that comes from a kid who didn't I, go to an Ivy League school. Well, or, yeah, I don't know. I certainly am, you know, I'm not the best educated person, but, I, but, the, but the filmmaking process has provided me a lot of opportunities to educate myself and interact with tr really brilliant people. Yeah. Learn that I could keep up. I could more than keep up. I could lead. And so that's meant... Uh, you know, a great deal to me over the years. Um, I wouldn't have tackled the story if I didn't feel I could, you know, I could deliver something exciting, entertaining, surprising. So even though I had looked at outlines in the past based on uh, Einstein's life for, you know, presentations for movies, even a screenplay many years ago, I think, and I never felt like it fit the movie narrative. But the idea that we could do it, you know, and do it for this network, National Geographic, and tell it in 10 hours. I, I felt like we had a chance as storytellers to do this man you know, justice and d deal with him warts and all because he was a complicated guy and, and nobody is immune from those human foibles or those, those moments of, you know, of character deficiency uh, or, 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 or really difficult choices. And Einstein, who was not um, an introvert, you know, he loved life, he loved women. I mean, he was kind of a, he, he was a ladies man. Uh, who, who would have who would have known that? Gosh, a TV series like that, even a, even a limited series, is such a different art form than a film. Because in a film, ninety percent of your work is figuring out how to get your story into a, a compressed a, format and, and a format that's that's pretty defined. Yes, and and will flow and hold an audience's attention in a single viewing. Right. right? But the way the business is evolving, it now. It now makes sense to work in a lot of different formats, whether it's short form, whether it's you know uh, OTT work, whether it's documentary. Uh, there's no better place to make the, this this story of Einstein than for National Geographic. Yeah. And I'm not just saying it because they bought it. It it's it's it sends a signal to the audience, you know. And I think because there are, there are so many shows, there are so many options out there for all of us yeah. that anything that helps define and build the case for wh why this, this particular project is, gonna, is worth sampling, is worth, you know, is worth exploring, um, you know, helps. Because we as storytellers, well, what? We want, we want our stories to be seen and heard. Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I could tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. Helix has it all figured out. You know, they make personalized mattresses right here in America, and they ship straight to your door with free, no-contact delivery, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. 
To choose a mattress, Helix made a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So if you like a mattress that's really soft or really firm, or you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, or you sleep really hot, with Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and everyone's unique taste. So when I took the quiz, I'd always had firm mattresses in my life, and I was told that was best for my back because I've had a lot of back issues from various motorcycle and skateboard injuries. But after taking the quiz, I was matched up with a medium mattress, and I got to tell you that since getting a Helix mattress, I've had the best sleep in my life. I have no back problems, and I sleep really soundly, and I never wake up hot, and I just find that I'm having comfortable sleep at a point in my life where you would think as you get older, sleep gets more difficult. So I can say with all honesty and without hyperbole that the Helix mattress changed my sleep, which changed my life. So obviously I love my Helix mattress, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. So here's what you do to have the experience that I'm having. Go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I think you will. And for off-camera listeners, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners if you go to helixsleep.com slash off-camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off-camera for up to $200 off your mattress order. Now back to the show. I look at a film like Rush that you did, that I just love, and I feel like what a complex, giant story that is. Even in script form, you have to be able to, number one, have a a very specific point of view, and number two, crack the code of what the story is about. And I wonder if there was a time when that all became more transparent to you, or you figured out how to use the medium rather than having the medium be a mystery to you. Well, it's de- I feel that I'm growing all the time. And again, uh, you talk about a movie like Rush. I, 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 don't, I couldn't have made it even 10 years before. It was a, it was a labor of love project. Peter Morgan's script was remarkable, based on real events, so there was a tremendous amount of research. But I don't think he, I think he understood the character dynamics and what could be entertaining about that and revealing and thematically rich. But I also felt like there was this, that you had to understand um, on a visceral level what it was to get into those cars and race. You were so good at understanding human emotions that you take that part of it for granted in a way. Like when you describe your big accomplishment, it's with the visceral thrill of getting in those cars. But I think watching that film, I learn about how men feel Mm -hmm. misunderstood, how they deal with ego. You know, an audience for that film, I think your allegiance can change from one character to the next. And I think one of the great accomplishments in that film is that it gets inside what it is to be a man that, that... needs accomplishment to feel worthy. One of the things that, I, that you said that, uh, that I also, I'm really glad you, f- you, f- you felt, and it was something that I really wanted, was a, lo- a lot of people were saying, who's the hero, who's the villain? And again, I get back to that idea of empathy and sympathy. And, and I, I think, I think I, it was important to me that your allegiance could shift. Yeah. Or, you know, and you know, that was challenging. 
and very important to work with the actors. And again, you know, that's I I I I love those kinds of of challenges and helping work with actors to try to meet those challenges and then take take that material to the editing room and find the you know the the the, the that most cohesive, most expressive. Um, um, you know, performance. I would think that at one point you would have to take ownership of the script entirely. You're going to have to narrow your point of view or define your point of view yeah. to make the movie thematically strong. Whereas, because you could give that same script to ten different directors, you'd have ten different movies. Yeah, you, you do have to. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's the high wire act, but you have to come to terms with yourself. You know, if you're going to make a lot of if you're going to make a lot of films and a lot of television shows, and this is my way of life, yeah, you know, some are going to turn out better than others, and the, and the and the and the ones that disappoint you are going to—they're gut-wrenching, uh, each and every one, because uh, you know you go into every project ho hoping it's it's going to be something you know an all-time great. But I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, you know a, a Wall Street guy, and he's always been a in the a trader, and he's in the bond trading business and he said when he recruits um, uh, young young talent he likes he likes you know they, they they have to they have to understand math but he loves to get men and women who are athletes highly competitive athletes and I said oh because it's you're trying to win right it's, it's, it's a it, 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 it's kind of a zero-sum thing he said no they know how to lose ah. they know how to lose and get back up and go and go hard and nobody reaches that caliber uh, of athletic achievement without losing a hell of a lot more than they ever win. And, um, and they, they, they learn how to cope with that. And I think if we're doing this kind of work, you know, you, and, you, and you want to make it your life's work, you, you sort of have to have that mental toughness, or at least that understanding. What I hear you saying is that you had to come to terms with the fact that there's going to be some failures along the way, and that shouldn't determine the choice for the next film. Is that true? Yes, and I had a couple of early um, observations um, about that. One was I acted in a television show with Henry Fonda, um, which was not a good show. It was called The Smith Family. It was in between The Andy Griffith Show and Happy Days, and it lasted a year and a half. And he knew that I wanted to be a film student. I was still in high school then, but I was making Super 8 movies and letting him read little scripts and short stories and things like that. And he said, well, you clearly love all of this, and I think you should, you should really pursue being a director, because if you love that medium, it's a director's medium. If you want to act, and that's what you love, it, movies are great, television's fine, you, but you've got to be on stage also. And he said, but either way you go, he said, you've you got to risk your career every so often. You've got to feel like you're challenging yourself and not repeating yourself. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was very interesting for him. When I realized, because Brian Grazer and I were teaming up for Imagine Entertainment and it was working and Splash was a success and I could see I was going to get to make other, you know, other movies and have a career, the only rule I gave myself was that I loved the medium and I wanted to explore it. I didn't want to be a brand unless that brand was just somehow quality, which is a very, you know, pretty vague. But I, I tried to, I, I said, I'm not going to do what, I, what I've done for, on, on these television series and have a life where I'm basically telling the same story over and over again because we know people like it. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to insist upon, um, you know, challenging myself. And I reached a point, by the time Apollo 13 came around, where the creative community studios, audiences, um, 
came to expect that variety from me. Right. And right. that was unbelievably liberating. And I began to feel the confidence so that now I don't choose a movie because I oh I haven't done I haven't worked in that genre before. Now I choose a story with themes that I like and believe in or or a situation I think audiences are going to particularly enjoy and engage with. And I and I have the the sort of the experience now to apply the appropriate genre to maximize that set of ideas and those and those characters and that's um, that's really liberating but once so, you have a few hits whether they're luck or not I would think that that's when the real fear comes in yeah, because yes. now you have to sustain something well, now there's something to lose right yeah. right and I, I just I was able to uh, uh, work my way through that fear um, and uh, and and it was also you know it, it was um, great to have had the experience I had as a kid you know and I, I, I was I was around a lot of people who are high achievers and I understood that they weren't always confident. I could see it even as a kid. Because you were around all these adult directors and... And stars and Andy, you know, I, I saw how much Andy Griffith put of himself into every one of those episodes. That looks like an aw shucks, easy going, you know, show to put on. You know, Andy struggled. There were, you know, if an episode wasn't good, he felt it to the very end. You know, he put his stamp on that show. You know, you've talked about your own limitations as an actor. Mm -hmm. Like, you've said yourself that you feel like you have limited range as an actor, and you've yeah. said that you knew you were never going to be an artist as right. an actor. Right, yes. I, I was right. I, I was right about that. I, I had a lot more creative potential as a director than I, than I had as an actor. And, and it's, a, it's some, um, I don't quite have an actor's um, mentality. Yeah, you know, I, I became an actor as a child, but I... I'm, I don't have a, a performer's uh, mentality, and I, 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 some people, you know, Russell Crowe, De Niro, um, Kate Blanchett, um, uh, you know, Hanks can embody something, and they, they, they do, they use their whole system, you know, so that their body becomes an instrument. They're, you know, they can, they can, they can do that kind of work, uh, and uh, I, if I was, you know, if, if I was well cast, I could be very effective. But I, I, I could just see it. I could see it, and I can see it to this day. So I'd rather take the artist, create the environment where he or she can, you know, max out, flourish. When you see that kind of actor at work, mm -hmm. is that still a mystery to you, even though you've done it? Well, I do think there's a kind of an X factor there. I do think that people have a gift. I'm not sure that can be learned. Uh, I think it can be encouraged. I think it can be brought out. But I think um, some people, it has to do with you know, their minds, their, 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 their physicality, uh, and their ability to somehow access it and, and uh, in remarkable ways. And, and so I'm in awe of that. And I just, I, what I try to do is help uh, or, or guide. Um, or, you know, if they're some, given their personalities, are they, you know, are, are they kind of, um, you know, are they interfering with their own process in some way? You know, can I help with that? Um, but mostly, can I understand where what they have to offer and this story can intersect and can I create those, the opportunity to get those moments uh, of intersection, you know, sh you know, photographed in the right way? Uh, can I do that? And that's my, that's my job. You know, it's a mystery to me is how some actors can look down for a minute and look back and there's 
three pages of exposition in that glance, and you know it's not a trick. Yeah. They are transferring information to the audience, and I would, I would bet that they don't know how they do, or they couldn't put words to it. Is that, is that valid to you? I, I, absolutely. It, it's, um, and a, and a gr great actors um, achieve that. I'll tell two quick stories about it. One, I wasn't directing, uh, but I was watching my friend Tom Hanks evolve as an actor, and I saw a moment in Forrest Gump when the bus is driving away and he's left alone. And I always thought Tom was incredibly talented, incredibly glib, very funny, full of emotion, but I thought he was most alive when he was talking. And I saw that moment and the way he filled it, and, and I remember thinking, oh, uh, now, he's, now he's a great screen actor. And, and then when I began directing him on Apollo 13 a year or so later, I saw it for myself and I could see it live. And I would sometimes just have a camera, a B camera come over and not even tell Tom. And it, because, because it, it wasn't about calibrating for a close up or anything like that. He was just feeling these scenes these, in these particular ways. And I would have a camera just find him and capture these things. It's powerful, you know? And you mentioned parenthood. I had a great experience directing fantastic um, character actor, legendary stage actor, Jason Robards Jr. Oh, yeah. But I cast him in this role. He's playing the, the paternal, you know, the, the grandfather character. Uh, and he's got this powerful scene with Tom Hulse, where Tom Hulse is the younger son who's disappointing his father, basically. He's a bit it's, of a near-dwell. It's near the dwell. fear that every parent has. Yeah, yeah. That you get that kid. <laughs> and, and that he's just never going to quite grow up, you know, and turn the corner. And... Uh, so we're doing this scene, and unfortunately, it's the first scene that Jason has to do, given the way we're scheduling it. So we're not getting to go in, you know, in, in story order, which is too bad. But um, we're playing out this scene, and um, and I have the the camera favoring Jason now. It's kind of a, a you know a closer shot. We can really read the details uh, of what he's feeling. And I didn't think he was registering enough. I didn't feel like he was, you know, I didn't feel that pain. Um, uh, he seemed to be sort of withholding his emotions and just, you know, and he was chilly, but I didn't feel the hurt, you know? And I thought we needed to get a take where we tried to achieve that. And so at this point, I was 34 years old, and I went up to um, uh, Jason, and I'm talking Who's to what, him. Who's what, 65 at the time? Yeah, 65 or 70, you know, and, and had won multiple well, Tonys and Oscars and so forth. And, uh, and I, I'm talking to him about the moment, and I, I don't want to give him a line reading, for God's sakes, not Jason Robards Jr. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm, so I'm kind of rambling along, trying to find the words to not offend, but to provoke, you know, something. And he reached over and touched my hand, and he said, Ron, do you want a sadder face? And now I thought, okay, well now the veteran is just fucking with the young director. <laughs> and now, okay, so we'll do a take, and he'll make a big mug shot, you know, a muggy face or something, and then I'll come in and we'll calibrate from there, I suppose. And you know, but okay, I said, well, maybe, maybe, maybe that's it, and uh, let, let's just try it. And we rolled the cameras, and it's the take that's in the movie. It was the most honest, organic, truthful um, depiction of that moment I could have ever dreamed of. And for Jason Robards Jr. at age 65 or 70, all he needed was a word sadder and or two words sadder face and he could process that in a way that whether he was feeling it i don't know what his emotional bio system i don't know what was going on 
what his biochemistry was, but what I saw was entirely truthful and evoked everything that I was hoping for. So I, I, you know, that was a lesson learned, that actors can keep getting better. It is an art form, and it's, it's high art, and, it, and, um, um, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's awesome to see it on display. In the end, what do you take away from that? It's always, you know, it's always an exploration. You can, I've given directions and, and I've unhinged actors. How do you walk that back? Well, you, you almost can't, you try. But I mean, I, 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 I try not to say too much until we've gotten a couple of takes. I mean, I, I kind of want to get the actor's organic version uh, first, unless, unless I'm seeing it in rehearsal and it's taking the scene in entirely the wrong direction. Uh, and then begin a little process of experimentation. What happens when, when their baseline is so far off from your expectation? I mean, I have replaced actors. Uh, sometimes there's a disconnect. I, it hasn't happened more than a handful of times. Right. But um, if, if you made them a mistake in casting, you know, that sometimes you have to rectify it in a really disappointing way. Uh, but if you're thorough about the casting process, it pretty much never happens. And I am thorough. As much as I really, really hate putting actors through that process of auditions and meetings and discussions and, and all that stuff, I hate it as an actor myself. I hate putting people I respect um, and a craft and an art form that I respect through that uh, sort of dehumanizing process. But better that than, um, you know, than a mistake that you have to adjust you know, when you're in production. But um, almost every project, I've, I, look at, I look at what we're doing and I see a minefield of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of dangerous uh, directions that it could go. <laughs> and I'm all trying to avoid them as best I can. But I've also made enough films and television shows to see that, that sometimes the, you know, it's not what you anticipated that winds up hurting your project. It's something you didn't anticipate. So again, live action pro, you know, production, unlike animation, is is an inexact process, and like yeah. you know, Robert Altman said, you know, the 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 movie the movie the movie speaks for itself. Eventually, it kind of evolves into itself, and you can you can as much as you want to apply your auteur, you know, um, controls uh, to that, you have to also understand that they take on a life of their own, and and I, I've seen it happen, and I've seen things elevate, and I've seen things ultimately uh, disappoint, but. And when I'm midway through it, I'm all, I'm just all, I'm just a total advocate, believer, and, and trying to make the moments great. And, and then you take it to the editing room and that's where you begin to see whether the moments have added up in the way you hoped they would. And, and, so, and the most disappointing thing is when um, it, it, sort of, it miscommunicates or it communicates as you'd planned, but somehow that is not speaking to the audience and reaching them in the way that you and your collaborators thought it would. It's the most honest mistake because it's some sort of misjudgment that is uh, really impossible to anticipate or next to impossible to anticipate. Yeah, I think that would be the hardest situation is when the film works out exactly like you wanted it to and then it doesn't And connect. people fold their arms and say, hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean, are you, do you well, sort we all of, do it. We, I mean, sure. you know, I mean, when we watch something, it lands or it doesn't land. Right. And, and everybody, I'm, I can guarantee you, people busted their asses. I uh, think it's a miracle when something does land collectively. Yeah. Because certainly it lands to yes. somebody. Everything yes. lands yes. for somebody. Right, right. But, but for something to land collectively seems like it's just, 
you you couldn't take it personally, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, is there too many factors out of your control, even though the, you're the director? Or are you someone who says, I, I take the responsibility, good or bad? I do take the responsibility, good or bad. You do? You don't chalk it up to sometimes? Oh, well, I think there are, I mean, I, 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 can, I can look myself in the mirror and say, well, I, you know, I didn't see that one coming and neither did, you know, some very important people, you right. know, in, in, the, in the process, damn. Um, but, um, but I don't, um, I don't ever think anything is anybody else's fault. You don't? No. I, it, sometimes, you know, I, I, again, I, I could say that I wasn't alone in being wrong, <laughs> <laughs> or, nor was I alone in being right. So I do, I like the team, but I, by the way, I kind of, I kind of like, as much as I love to be the director, and, and I enjoy producing, I, I do, I do like the, the sort of the, the, you know, the, the collaboration and the team spirit. Right. Are you hard on yourself when something doesn't work? Yeah, of course, because who else's job was it to get it right? Have you ever gotten a critique that, that you really took to heart and learned from? Like, do, do you ever learn from that experience of, or, or have you ever had a film that, that you know, the experience was different for you than it was for the audience, or it was positive? Oh, yes. All, all of the above. Y yes, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a movie means a lot to you, a story means a lot to you, and you're just in that minority, you know? Because as you said, every story speaks to, you know, some, some portion of the audience. Yeah. If you're making, um, you know, broad, mainstream entertainment, which is what, what I do and what I want to do, uh, you know, you, you've got to reach the majority. That's a high bar to uh, and set. It's a high bar to set. And I've learned a lot over the years about kind of asking the right sort of questions to understand, um, you know, where the project is going and what people might be anticipating. But it's a fascinating process, and I've gotten better and better at it and, um, and, and a little bit less tough on myself. Whereas in the beginning, the editing room was where I was really just wanted to slip my wrists because it was just like, who's directing this frickin' movie? Uh, really? That's where the, that's, you didn't do another take? Uh, you, you know, there's a, there's a great thing in the movie, um, uh, all, all That Jazz, um, where um, Bob Fosse directed it, and Roy Scheider's playing Bob Fosse, basically, doing right. Lenny, and he's in the editing room, and he's flipping out, and he's saying, uh, God damn it, what asshole told the actor to do that? Me, I'm the asshole that told the actor to do it, play it that way, and it's it's like the most honest thing about directing because sometimes the sometimes directing does you know it does make you feel stupid. <laughs> well, do you ever wonder what it is like how it is that you get so much smarter when you're on the editing couch and you're looking at it going, <laughs> why couldn't I see that? Oh, uh, it, again, it's that it's that um, you know you saw a portion of it, but you couldn't see it all together. It is a kind of mosaic, and you're you're piecing it together. But it's the question of all questions, and we're we're always trying to do better at it. You know what I liken it to? I liken it to um, when you when you watch home movies of your kids a few years later. <laughs> you know, when you're there with the camera, yeah, and you're watching it, you're missing everything, and then yeah. you go back a couple of years and you watch, and you go, or even six months, and you say, well, why didn't I see what? my child was doing or trying to tell me or that's a great that's that's a great analogy and uh um like why yeah. can't we see real life as it happens yeah damn <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and i caught a, a frame of of bryce in parenthood oh oh yeah yeah she she uh she appeared in i think in our final scene and once in a while she, 
she would show up in my movies as an extra. She was always interested. Well, you know, it broke my heart because um, uh, it's that scene where, and obviously this isn't a new idea that parenting is a roller coaster, but you earned that metaphor in that film by, you know, by taking us on a ride. And then what I felt when we got to that part in Parenthood was I felt a bit of relief because uh, you got the sense that you d we're doing the best we can yeah. and it's not really within our control. Acceptance. Parenting is, uh, it's acceptance, it's of acceptance of ourselves. And that's the best lesson about that movie and the best lesson about being a parent is learning to accept our humanness and to see your daughter in that moment. I mean, it kind of brought it all together for mm -hmm. me of, of being a parent, thinking about what you were going through and... and well, that whole, that whole idea was born on a plane flight. It was a 17-hour plane flight to Buenos Aires. We were going to do the movie with Michael Keaton uh, and Getty Watanabe, Gung Ho, and we couldn't get into any automobile plant in the U.S. It was, a, it was about Japanese company taking over right. American automobile com uh, plant. And uh, so we had to go to Buenos Aires where they would let us uh, use this one wing of this plant that was semi-shut down. And, uh, well, um, Bryce was about mm, four years old, and we had our twins, Jocelyn and Paige, were, were only about seven months old. So Bryce was maybe four and a half. And she was going to sit next to me on this 17-hour flight. Now, we didn't ship ahead. We needed, we needed the diapers and the baby formula and all the stuff that we needed with us. So you were only allowed two carry-on items. I had 24 carry-on items. So I got the crew, it was a commercial flight, to all carry-on stuff for me. And I was gonna, my job was to look after uh, Bryce on the flight. And uh, so they had this little vegetarian sushi um, dish. And, and uh, I said, you wanna try a sushi? There's no fish in it, it's just vegetarian. She said, okay. And she tried it and Within the first 40 minutes of the flight, she projectile vomited all over my shirt, and I had no change. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, God. And the babies were crying, and I was helping Cheryl, and we were just walking them and driving the crew crazy. And we got landed, and we got all 24 pieces of luggage, and I was pulling luggage off the carousel, just sweating like a pig. You know, I was like, how old was I? 32, 33 years old. I was just like an old man, just suffering. And I just thought, nobody told me. Why wouldn't anybody tell me what this was like? I was feeling so sorry for myself. And I realized, oh, that's funny. <laughs> because if people told you, you know, none of us would do it. Yeah. And I just started laughing while I was on the carousel. A little bit like Steve Martin is laughing at the end when he realizes it's chaos, but it's my life and I, it's what I want. And, and that's, that was the, so in a weird way, the emotion that, that sort of hatched that idea was kind of the emotion on Steve Martin's face there at the end of the movie. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it's because I grew up with you on my television or the stories you're able to tell are a combination of both, but it's just great to be able to hear you share these stories and connect with your films and know that there's not that great of a difference between the man and, and the work you're making. And, and I just, I admire the work you do and, the, and more than that, I just admire the way you've lived your life. So, thank you, thank you. Yeah. I, re I really appreciate it. What a great, uh, a great opportunity to talk. I love your show. I can't here I am the 100th episode. I, I gotta say I'm, I'm a fan, you know, which is why I'm here. I can't think of a better 100th guest. So thank, thank you. you for doing this. Pleasure, thank you.
Hey folks, that's our show for today. Our hundredth show, in case you forgot. You know, we could not make this show without the hard work of a lot of talented people. Let's start with Nathan Shields, who has added trumpet player to his long list of duties here at the off-camera studios. Crawford Shippey, our producer and head of the Department of Adult Supervision. Michaela Galvin, our graphic designer, camera person, retoucher, and sugar supplier for the whole office. Sasha Snow, who holds the fort down and makes sure everything happens when it's supposed to happen, and that nothing happens that isn't supposed to happen. Kara Johnson, who listens to every one of these conversations and transcribes them so we can read them. And Matt Davidson, who scours the perimeter of off-camera for trash and other unsightly items and makes sure that all the bathrooms are working properly. And most of all, you, the listener, for sticking with us for 100 episodes. We really hope you'll be around for the next 100. And if you're new to the show, please take a moment, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to Off Camera. Also, check out our website, offcamera.com. And if you want to drop me a line, I'm Sam at offcamera.com. On social media, we are Off Camera Show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for going along this journey with us and for tuning into these conversations. See you next time, Off Camera.